Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to read from verses 20 uh, through through 23, excuse me, before we pray. Um, And uh, while you're turning there, I do just want to mention again that our college retreat is coming up in four weeks. Uh, We would love to have you guys there. Like I said earlier, our topic is going to be relationships, uh, sex, and dating. And uh, we're going to cover a few topics related to that. Won't just be me teaching, but a number of folks here on staff at Grace. And uh, we are excited about that. Don't let the cost be the reason that you don't come. We do have some scholarships available for those of you that may feel like you need some financial assistance. We would love for you to be there either way. And so we hope you guys will come. You can sign up online. Uh, You can sign up uh, here at the church, but we'd love to see you guys there. All right, Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful to you for this morning, and we do praise you because you are holy. You are set apart from us because of your character, because of your power, because of your grace. And we praise you that in Jesus Christ... You have given us forgiveness of our sin and eternal life. God, we pray that our attitudes and our words and our actions would reflect the love of Jesus Christ and the grace that you have given. Father, we just ask that as we study your word this morning, you would help us to understand it. I pray, speak through me. I pray, remove any distractions Allow our minds to focus and understand what it is you're trying to say to us through your word. I pray, Father, that our hearts would be soft and pliable to hear your word. And then I pray, Father, that we would move through the power of your spirit to obey your will. We love you, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if any of you guys in here are perfectionists. Uh, I confess I am not in most areas of my life uh, a huge perfectionist. There's certain things that I want to do just right, uh, but for the most part, I don't try to get everything uh, just perfectly. Case in point, uh, this is a recent picture of my desk uh, at my office, and uh, this is on not a terribly bad day, actually. This is not the worst that it gets. And so uh, some of you, though, if I were to walk into your room and look at your desk, it would be perfectly clean, right? Some of you see that picture and you're feeling nauseated a little bit right now, right? Like you're going to kind of throw up in your mouth or something because uh, you like things just perfectly clean. I have a coworker like that. Walk into his office and uh, there are usually no books, no papers, nothing. It's just a clean desk. Uh, I had a friend in college like this. I'll call him Paul. Uh, you would walk into Paul's room and uh, I'm not kidding that I wondered where this guy kept all of his stuff. Uh, I would walk in and the desk would be totally 
empty of anything, squared off. The bed was perfectly made. Uh, I always wanted to try to just take a little sneak under the bed because I was sure that was where all the mess was. Couldn't figure out where it was because it was unfathomable to me uh, that you could live a life without any mess or chaos. In fact, uh, one day a friend of mine walked into Paul's room and he took in the surroundings and he said, Paul, it's sterile in this place, man. And uh, Paul looked back up at him and said, well, it was until you walked in, all right? Now, that's a perfectionist, right? That's a guy who uh, cannot handle the thought of imperfection or disorder in his world, and that's the way some of you are. If I were to walk up here uh, with my shirt untucked, you would be totally unhinged. Uh, You wouldn't be able to focus. Uh, You are a perfectionist because you want everything to be just right in your relationships, at school, in your room, whatever it may be. And the truth is that uh, for many of you, it's probably, it's a problem, right? Because you can't control everything in your world. And so there are things that you can't make perfect and that frustrates you. And whether you are a perfectionist or not, uh, my guess is that every single one of us in this room at some point has felt like things ought to be better than they are. We want things to be perfect. Uh, Maybe there is a class that we just can't seem to master, and yet we would like to get a 100 on it, but we can't. Maybe it's a relationship that we're struggling with, maybe in a dating relationship, and you just can't seem to understand the other person and you want it to be better than it is. Uh, Maybe it is that you struggle with a sin in your life and you can't seem to master a particular sin in your life. And so as a result, you're frustrated and you say, why is it like this? Why is my life constantly short of what I want it to be? If you've ever felt that way, and I think all of us have, if you've ever felt that way, what you are in reality experiencing, I think, is a longing for heaven. What you're experiencing is something that God placed within you because uh, you look around at the world around you and you say, it's not like it's supposed to be. Things aren't right. There's misunderstanding and there's sin and there's miscommunication and uh, my body is not uh, getting better and better. It's going to get worse and worse and you look around and you say, why is it that the world isn't like it ought to be? And you long for perfection. As we've been talking about heaven and hell, you remember several weeks ago, we talked about the concept that uh, really our hope from a scriptural perspective is not to go to a place where we float around on clouds, where we play harps, where we don't have bodies and we're just spirits, but the biblical hope is actually that God God will take this world and he will restore it to the way it was meant to be. That's Revelation 21 and 22. Now, certainly when we die, there is a a sort of place that we go, a heaven that we go where our bodies are in the grave and our spirits are in heaven with God. But the ultimate biblical hope is that we will one day be resurrected. And at the end of the scripture, you see heaven coming down to earth. And that is our hope. Heaven is a place of absolute perfection. Imagine the world as good as it could possibly be, without death, without sin, without any of the problems that we face now. And that's the biblical picture of heaven. We're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail this morning than we've covered up to this point, because I want us to look forward at this concept of heaven and this concept of eternity, and especially for those who may struggle with perfectionism at times, but whether you do or not, I want all of us to look forward to that and say, you know, my ultimate hope for my life is not that I can create the perfect career now, or that I can have the perfect body, or the perfect marriage, or the perfect family, but my ultimate hope rests in the hands of God who through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is planning to restore the earth to the way that it was meant to be. 
And in the meanwhile, what I do is I try to reflect what God is one day going to do with my life. I try to reflect the love and the truthfulness and the grace of God in Jesus Christ so that the world can see. And then I present to those around me the hope that one day God's going to make all of this the way it should be. And for those who believe in Jesus Christ, we have that opportunity to be a part of that. Okay, so what is heaven like? We're going to talk about that for a few minutes this morning. What is the perfection of heaven going to be like? The first thing is this. We will have perfect bodies, perfect bodies. All right, I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life uh, where I have wanted uh, something about my body to be different from the way it was. Maybe you've experienced that. Uh, I would love to be a little taller than I am, uh, like a foot, right? I would love uh, not to be five foot seven when I'm optimistic, right? But I would love to be, uh, you know, well over six feet towering over everybody. That's not the reality of my life. And yet uh, it's how God has made my body, right? And all of us perhaps have looked at the mirror at times and said, you know, I really, I'd like there to be a little bit less fat on one part of my body. I'd like for maybe my nose or my eyes or my ears to look different. I'd like to be taller. Maybe even I'd like to be a little shorter. And we struggle with these issues related to how our body looks. And we say, man, I want it to be perfect. And maybe even some of you, you've spent your life in pursuit of the perfect body. You work out and you work out and you work out and you you measure out very carefully what you eat and what you don't eat because you want it to be perfect. Now, what's interesting is you may go about that pursuit of perfection in the wrong way and at the wrong time, but biblically speaking, uh, one of our hopes of heaven is a perfect body. Look for a second at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just flip over there uh, in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm going to start in verse 35. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now skip down to verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is making this argument against people who said, you know, it's ridiculous that you're saying that when we die, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we will one day rise from the dead. 
All right, that sounds like a silly notion. And often, even in Christian circles, we don't talk a lot about the fact that our ultimate hope is not that when we die, we'll go to heaven, but our ultimate hope is that we will die. And in Jesus Christ, just as Jesus rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. And our body might look different from the way it looks now in some ways, but in many ways, there will be continuity, right? When Jesus rose from the dead, notice the tomb was empty. It was Jesus' body that rose from the dead. And Paul presents this picture that our body in eternity will be sort of like what Jesus was when Jesus rose from the dead. Turn over again, uh, Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 36. Luke 24, starting in verse 36. Okay, the scene is the disciples are sitting in a room. They're talking to one another after Jesus has died. In verse 36, it says, While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. I don't know if you ever read that passage carefully, but the whole reason that Luke writes that down is to say this. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, was not disembodied. You couldn't put your hand right through him. He wasn't a ghost. He was a human being. And I love this. They're standing there, and they're amazed, and they're astonished. And Jesus says, got anything I can munch on? Right? And he grabs a piece of fish, and he eats the fish. He says, look at my hands, my feet. Touch them. A spirit doesn't have these, doesn't have flesh and bones. Jesus' body rose from the dead. There was an early Christian heresy called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was the belief that the body was evil and the spirit was good. So to a Gnostic, the ultimate goal of your life was not to rise from the dead and spend eternity with God, but instead it was to escape the body. And so they would do all kinds of things uh, to try to minimize the importance of their body. For some of them, they would practice real strict asceticism. They would starve themselves or beat themselves and punish their bodies. Others of them went to the opposite extreme and they would indulge their bodies, engage in all kinds of sexual immorality and licentiousness and drinking because they devalued the body. And yet the early Christians said, no, that is not biblical Christianity. And so if you read the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest statements of what Christians believe, the Apostles' Creed makes a point at the very end to say, we believe in the resurrection of the body. And our hope is a resurrected, perfect body. I I really don't know if in heaven I will be a foot taller. You can pray for me, but I I don't really know if that's going to happen or not. But I think that what is going to happen is that I will be recognizable to you and you to me. And yet, my body will be exactly as it was always really intended to be. I think you look in a mirror in that resurrected body and go, that's what my hair was supposed to look like, right? That's what it was supposed to be. And yet, when you see Jesus' body, it was still Jesus, right? He could do some things we can't, right? Like walk through walls or suddenly appear in a room. I hope we can do those things, right? 
But there will be continuity because our body will rise from the dead. And I, I want us to be cautious as you engage, even with Christian culture, sometimes this hint of Gnosticism tends to rise up even in the popular songs that we sing, and even in some of the things that we listen to or watch in Christian culture. Uh, I ran across just this week one of the newest songs by Robbie C., and I I like Robbie C. He's sung some great songs, um, so this is not in any way to slam him personally, but uh, just watch and listen how it's so easy for this idea of the body being bad and my spirit being good to creep in. He says in this song, I'm a soul with a body of my own. And there's a time I'll lay this body down. When I go, don't mourn for what is lost, but rejoice for what is found. Now listen to this. If the devil wants to come for me, I will tell him to his face, you can have my body, but you cannot have my soul. In the heavens, I will be singing songs of hallelujah. You can have my body, but you cannot have my soul. No, you cannot have my soul. I can go. I can live beyond these bones. I can walk the streets of gold. Let me go. Let me go. Let me live and breathe again in a place I've longed to know. All right, now I know he's talking about the fact that uh, God has defeated death, but inadvertently, I think in the process, he's created the impression that our goal is to escape the body. And the reality is, no, the devil doesn't get our body. When Jesus rose from the dead, he resurrected his body and he redeemed our bodies. And that's what we read in Romans chapter 8. We look forward to the redemption of the body. And that's what we're going to have one day in heaven is a perfect body. I ran across a story this week in Dallas Willard's book, Spirit of the Disciplines. He talks about a young mother who had lost her baby. Uh, Her baby had died and and well-meaning friends came in and said, "Uh, don't worry, that's just his body. His spirit is with God. And, And she said this, she said that I conceived this body. I bore this body. I fed this body. I bathed it. I changed it. I dressed this body. I love this body. And then Willard goes on to say this, you cannot in the final analysis love another person in the normal human sense and not also love his or her body. And you cannot love or really care about that body and not love the person also. The only way I know how to interact with you is in bodily means. I can see you. I can touch you. I can talk with you. That's part of what makes us human. And the great thing about Christianity is we proclaim a resurrection and a restoration of all that is truly human. So we look forward to this place where we have perfect resurrected bodies. All right, secondly, uh, in heaven, we will have perfect relationships, perfect relationships with one another and with God. And I I look forward to that as well. Um, I've been married for now going on 12 years, and I have to admit uh, there are still times that I don't understand my wife. (laughs) Not real. It's just an illustration. There are, uh, <laughs> there are still times I don't understand. There are uh, still times that she doesn't understand me. And, and this goes all the way back even to our days of dating. Uh, I made all kinds of mistakes and faux pas. Uh, one day when we'd been dating probably for a couple of months, we were sitting on a sofa and we were kind of talking. And, and uh, like you do, guys, you know, I just kind of started talking. I thought, this is my moment, right? She's sitting close to me and I kind of put the arm up around there. You know, the arm... Just kind of does its own thing, right? And the arm just kind of went up there and it was sitting there for a few minutes and I was thinking, I'm feeling pretty good. And she looks over at me and she goes, your arm's around me. And I said, uh, yeah. She goes, did, did you ask if you could put your arm up over there? <laughs> arm came down, right? <laughs> I asked and she said, oh, sure. Arm, you know, went back up there. Okay. 
another incident, we'd been dating now, uh, I don't know, two or three months, and we were walking along, and, and I had been telling people, yeah, we're dating, and we were pretty much exclusively dating, and uh, as we were just kind of walking, I just kind of casually said something about, uh, you know, I, I consider you my girlfriend, and I didn't think it was that big a deal uh, to say that, uh, but she stopped, and she said, really? Wow. She goes, I- I've been waiting for you to kind of define things a little bit, kind of tell me what's going on here, right? I had no idea. I still have days like that, all right? And so will you. And you guys experience it all the time. And it's not just in romantic relationships that you get confused, right? Sometimes you're confused about what your roommates are thinking, what your professors are thinking, your parents. We have trouble with relationships. We don't understand people the way we should. And yet when we go to heaven, we will have perfect relationships. Most important one with God himself. Uh, There are many days I don't understand God. He seems quiet. He seems distant, silent. I read the Bible sometimes and it doesn't make sense to me. Or I just don't want to do what it says. And yet the biblical picture of heaven is we will have a perfect relationship with God. Look at a couple passages. 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. We will understand God in a way we don't now. Have a perfect friendship with him. 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. So we look forward to this day where there isn't this distance between us and God anymore. A lot of people have uh, made a big deal about the fact that Jesus says in Mark chapter 12 that in heaven, uh, we won't be married, right? We, we will not be married. There will not be, I guess, uh, it seems like there won't be sex. There won't be marriage in heaven. And so a lot of people, that really stresses them out, right? Especially, uh, actually, those who have been married for a long time, they say, I don't understand. Uh, if there's no marriage in heaven, I'm really going to miss this person that I've spent my life with. And I think the misunderstanding is that in heaven, All of us will have relationships that are so close to one another and to God that I don't think we will miss that relationship. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, uh, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. On receiving the answer no, he might regard absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing which excludes it. We're in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. Hence, where fullness awaits us, we anticipate fasting. What I love is the Bible actually doesn't say there's no marriage. Instead, it says that the one marriage in heaven will be the marriage between God and his people. And that's an imagery all the way through. And Ephesians 5 says that marriage now is actually just a reflection of the relationship of Christ and the church, and a dim one at that. Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The idea is that ultimately our relationship with God will be much greater than anything we can even imagine now. And we'll have perfect relationships with one another because of our relationship 
with God. I love this imagery in Isaiah chapter 25. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. I love this imagery because it says all those who believe in Jesus Christ will one day sit around at a big banquet table together. From every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnicity, we will sit around and we will worship God and we will eat together. And all of the strife and conflict that troubles us now won't be there. We'll have perfect relationships. And so as you go through your life, I think the scripture challenges to say, yeah, our relationships now will never completely fulfill the loneliness that we feel. They'll never take that away. They're never completely fulfilled the longing that we have for relationship because we're looking for that in our ultimate relationship with God. Many people enter even into marriage expecting it to swallow up all of that loneliness and all of those problems that they have. And the reality is it can't do that because human marriage is only meant to reflect our relationship with God, but it's not the fullness of it. And so the reality is if, if you're a person who's needy, and struggling and insecure. The biblical solution is not to try to surround yourself with more Facebook friends or whatever it may be, right? The biblical solution instead is to look to the hope of the future in which God will restore our relationships with him and with one another such that we'll never be lonely again. And so in in the Bible, we see we'll have perfect relationships, perfect bodies, perfect relationships. Thirdly, perfect surroundings, perfect surroundings. We read Romans 8, 20 to 23, Let me show it to you just really quickly again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of of our body. The idea is that there's going to come a day in which our surroundings will be perfect. There won't be any more droughts. There won't be any more hurricanes. There won't be any more death or curse. Remember, Adam and Eve in the garden, because of their sin, that cursed the whole earth. And we've seen it here in Texas. This has been the worst drought on record in the history of Texas. All right, for some of us, it hasn't been that big a deal, right? For me, it really hasn't. My lawn is dead. Our shrubs are dead, but we'll survive. For others, it's been their livelihood. For some, even their lives. And we grieve at that. And we say, the scripture tells us that there is going to come a day when heaven will come to earth and our surroundings will be perfect. One of the greatest imageries of eternity comes from Isaiah chapter 11. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I have a I've mentioned this. I've got a 20-month-old son. He'll be turning two here in January. We've thought about a lot of different things for his birthday, uh, but what we have not thought about is uh, giving him a cobra, right? Uh, you guys would 
think that I was a bad parent, right? If I gave him a cobra, if I set him outside and said, I've got some things to do, uh, play with this snake pit for a little while, right? Okay? That'd be a terrible thing to do. We don't go to the zoo and I don't say, hey, uh, I want to send my kids in to, to feed the lions. Is that all right? Okay. Why? Because those animals are, are hostile to us right now and they're hostile to one another. And our surroundings themselves are ones in which there's death and there's hostility and violence and decay. And yet we look forward to a time where there's perfection. Animals don't eat each other anymore or people. People don't kill other people. The earth itself doesn't turn on us. One effect of the curse was that uh, our work is, feels vain and fruitless. We'll talk about that in a minute. That won't happen anymore. Our surroundings will be perfect. Heaven will come to earth. There will be no more curse. So perfect bodies, perfect relationships, perfect surroundings, and then finally, perfect occupations. Perfect occupations. I want you to think for a minute, what is the worst job that you've ever had in your life? For me, I, I can remember, I, I've had some doozies, but one of the ones that just felt the most pointless was one summer I worked at a law firm, kind of just as a little clerk, runner, uh, whatever it may be. And the very first day I showed up this summer, one of the lawyers said, I've got a task for you. And he led me back to a file room that was maybe 500 square feet, about 10, 12 feet high. And it was stacked floor to ceiling with those movable bookcases. They were all filled with just thousands and thousands of files. And they were all this thin and there were just thousands of them. And he said, here's what I want you to do. He said, uh, here's a shredder and here's a trash can. And uh, I want you to go through all of these files throughout the summer. And uh, if you see anything that is older than a certain date, want you to shred it and uh, dump it all into this can. So my day, all day long, literally was spent opening files, pulling out papers, going, and then I would take the thing and I would dump it into a can and then I would go get another stack of files, eight hours a day, five days a week, three months. All right. It was, it was my own little form of hell. I mean, it was just, it was one of the worst jobs that I have ever had in my life because here's why. Uh, because it felt absolutely pointless. It would have been quicker just to burn the file room down, right? It just felt pointless. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you have a job or a class or a task that you go, this is a waste of my time. Why am I doing this? And, and that is the curse. Interestingly, the, the curse on Adam and Eve was not that they would have to work. They had to work before the curse. They were encouraged to subdue the earth, to tend to the garden. The curse was the futility of work, the sweat and the pain and the labor that came into their work. And yet what we see in eternity is that we have perfect occupations. We have meaningful work, work that advances the kingdom of God. Revelation chapter 7, verse 15, for this reason they, meaning the saints, In God's presence, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They serve him day and night in meaningful work. Revelation chapter 22, there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his bond servants will serve him. And it goes on to say in verse five that they will reign with him. We will have work where we're delegated a real authority and real opportunity to influence God's kingdom. Work doesn't cease when God returns. That may disappoint some of you. And the reason you feel disappointed by that is because work right now 
feels painful and hard. But in eternity, work will be something we do with joy, something that is productive, something that is meaningful, to serve God, to reign alongside of Him forever. And I don't know about you, but that helps me even now as I'm working to say, you know, my work now, it's not perfect, but I want to work in such a way that I am reflecting the work that I am ultimately called to do for God, to be His representative as He reigns on the earth. So we'll have perfect occupations. And so what we see is that our ultimate hope is actually, again, the perfection of everything that you would dream of right now. Right, a perfect body, perfect relationships, perfect surroundings, perfect jobs. It is absolute perfection. And so that part that is inside of you that says, I want things to be better than they are, that is put there by God. But we are called by God to invest those hopes in the kingdom that he is going to bring. Because you can't make it happen now. I don't care how much of your money you give away. I don't care how many people you feed. I don't care how many good things you do. You cannot make God's kingdom come because it's something that God has done and is continuing to do and will do in Jesus Christ. And so what we're called to do is we're called to reflect his values now and share the truth of his kingdom now so that men and women from across the world can come to know him. Where are your hopes invested? As you go through college, are your hopes ultimately invested in getting the perfect job? You say, if I just get that perfect job, that will be heaven for me. Maybe it's invested in finding the perfect spouse. If I just find the right, perfect person, then all of my hopes will be fulfilled. Maybe it is invested in having the perfect body, perfect house. And what Scripture tells us is you won't find any of those things right now. You won't find them. And if that's what you're striving for, you will find constant disappointment. But instead, God promises, one day I'm bringing all that. And so your task now is to reflect my values and point people to the kingdom of God. Maybe that you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus Christ. And if that is you, the message for you this morning is very simply that the only way to participate in the perfect kingdom that God has promised is to believe that Jesus Christ died in your place because you and I are sinners separated from God for eternity. We've talked about this, that uh, we are separated, all destined for hell. And yet God in his grace gave Jesus Christ who died in our place. He rose again. He defeated death and sin. And because of that resurrection, we have a promise of eternal life. Maybe you need to believe that for the very first time. It may be that you do, and yet your hopes are invested in the things of this world right here and now. And you need to transfer your hopes and your dreams and your expectations into God's hands. Say, God, I'm going to trust, and I'm not going to be alarmed or disappointed right now when things don't always work like I want them to work. But instead, I'm going to reflect your values and then proclaim those values and proclaim the gospel to the world around so that one day, Men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will sit around that banquet table, worship God in perfection. That's what we're called to do. Would you guys pray with me? Father, you are a perfect God, and you have planned for us a real place, a a perfect place that will fulfill all of our hopes and dreams and expectations, all the things that we seek for now, you're one day going to provide because of Jesus Christ. I pray if there are any in here who don't yet know Jesus, that this would be the day they believe that Jesus died and rose again so we can have life. 
For those who do, Father, I pray, make us faithful to put our hopes in you and then to share the hope that we have, as Peter says, the expectation that we have to share that with others with gentleness and reverence. God, make us faithful to serve you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week.